Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're going in search of what lies beneath. Our guest is Andy Davidson, Bram Stoker-nominated author of In the Valley of the Sun and The Boatman's Daughter. His third book, The Hollow Kind, came out a few weeks ago. It's an absolute banger, and it's what he's here to talk about today. Now, there's a lot going on in this book. It's a haunted house story of sorts, a creature feature of sorts, an historical novel of sorts, and it's got a whole lot of southern gothic of many kinds. Andy's prose is lush, and by Christ does he know a lot about the history of Georgia, both human and natural. Now, we talk a lot about that in this episode, as well as the link between industry and horror, the allure of extreme fictional violence, and the sheer delight of finding a map at the front of a book. Plus, we go a little deeper than usual into the nature and origins of the evil at the heart of Andy's story. As I say every week, if you want more Talking Scared, you can sign up for Patreon at patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. You'll get a few bonus episodes per month, a lot of chat from me, some exclusive interviews, and all contributions are received with complete gratitude. But now, come with me to a clearing in the woods somewhere down south. The shadows are as thick as the kudzu, and the ground is rank with turpentine and blood. Let's talk scared. Hi Andy, welcome to Talking Scared. Thanks for making yourself available today. Thanks for having me. Whereabouts in the world are you today? I'm in Cochrane, Georgia, which is a small town about, I would say, about two and a half hours south of Atlanta, Georgia. So sitting in my office on a beautiful 70 degree October day. Very nice. Yeah, I'm just coming out of a storm here in the UK where it looks like the world's about to end. Um, So I would like to be in the peach state right now. We had that last week. Yeah, the the end of the world down in Florida. I mean, I realize the insensitivity of what I've just said because we had a little bit of rain and you guys <laughs> had like, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll take that back. It's not been that bad here in, in comparison. But I have been to Georgia once at the end of an epic cross-country road trip. We terminated in Savannah. Mm-hmm. And though Savannah is laden with spooky history, it's it's nothing like the Georgia of your new novel, which is a truly blighted land. Um, that's my segue into saying that this the novel is called The Hollow Kind. And by the time this podcast drops, it's been out for two weeks. So hopefully a number of listeners will have already devoured it. And I'll certainly be doing my best to ensure they do. But for those yet to read it, can you introduce this story, Andy? Sure. Um, The Hollow Kind is the story of Nellie Gardner and her son, Max. Nellie is on the run from a bad marriage and she takes her son with her when she flees her husband. And uh, they make their flight to an estate in Georgia, a decrepit turpentine estate that she's inherited from her grandfather who's passed away. The year is 1989 and Nellie is looking for a place to call her own, a refuge, a place to hide away. And what she and Max learn fairly quickly as they um, layers and layers of the family's history and the house are revealed is that this is neither of those things. This is not a place to hide away. And this is not a place that anyone would want to call home. That's one of the real things about this book. There are so many layers, kind of historically, thematically. 
yeah, it, it's like peeling back a very, very rotten onion to its core. <laughs> I might as well say straight out of the gate, Andy, this is this is my favourite book of the year by far, <laughs> so far. Thank you. Um, we'll get into why as we go along, no doubt, but I, I utterly loved it. And if anything, I was saying to you off air that I, I, I'm a bit gutted that I had to read it at such pace to get ready for this interview because I think I blasted too quickly through the like high strangers of the last 50 pages. Mm-hmm. I have a week to read each book and, and you pushed me because the Holocaust, you know, it's not short. It's not, it's not massively long. I think it, it's 430 pages. Right. But they're inc- they're incredibly dense pages. There's a, a lot of detail, a lot of specificity, a lot of research and some really lush prose. This is the first book of yours that I've read. I'm going to correct that. But so far, it's the first book of yours I've read. So would you say that The Hollow Kind is representative of your writing? Or have you gone for something different here? I think it is representative of what I do. Um, one of the things that I like to do is take a place that I've been, that I've lived, that I know, and focus a story around um, that place, build a story around that place. So in this particular case, it was Georgia. In my previous novel, The Boatman's Daughter, it was my home state of Arkansas, where I grew up. Uh, And in the first novel that I published, In the Valley of the Sun, it was Texas, West Texas, which um, is sort of a mythical land to me. But um, every book that I've written is, is of a piece in the sense that they all have at their heart a kind of deep dive into place and atmosphere. Well, that's that's very clear in the hollow kind, and um, hence that lushness of prose because it really feels like you really do natively understand like the flora, the fauna, the history, the industry of this of this landscape. And you allude in the afterword in the in the author note to how you were inspired to write this by the walks you'd taken in the area. Mm-hmm. Can you elaborate a little on that? How specifically did the Georgian landscape and and the nature kind of birth this darkest of stories? Well, about 30 miles to the southeast of where we live, there's a town called McRae. And McRae has a state park that um, is sort of unobtrusive, out of the way. You wouldn't notice it on a map, uh, state park here in Georgia. But that park has a trail that winds for about two miles through at least four or five different topographies um, from sand hills and, and turkey oaks to longleaf pines and wiregrass meadows and a swamp at the end where you can see alligators floating uh, in the water. Uh, so it's a, it's a really inspiring kind of place. And it's mysterious because I've, I've never, I mean, I've, we've walked a lot of trails, my wife and I have, and I've never been on a trail that had such a varied quality to it. You start in what seems to just be a hardwood forest and suddenly you're you know, cresting this rise and there's uh, gopher tortoise holes and you might see an indigo snake crawling across the pathway. So it's a fascinating landscape and it's right here, not far from where I'm at. Um, so those walks through that trail, we, we maybe made about three of them over the course of the book and writing it were very inspirational. Um, one of the impetuses for the book, though, was this idea of turpentining, turpentine farming. Um, I didn't know much about it, but I had heard 
through colleagues here at the university where I work that it was at, at one time a significant industry in the area. And um, we discovered through kind of diving into that research-wise that they're uh, about an hour to the south of where we are here. There's an agricultural museum that's run by one of our um, state colleges in the university system. And they actually have replicas of, you know, a working turpentine mill and all sorts of great stuff. So we were able to go there and actually see that process, um, see like what a big barrel of hardened rosin looks like. Um, and so in a way it was learning about the place where I live as much as it was um, being inspired by the place. And so those two things kind of came together for me as I was writing the book. But yeah, it, it sort of began as just a curiosity about where I live. I always think it's great when that happens, when something sort of niche about the industry of a, of a place kind of comes to represent that place. I know I'm in the UK and obviously we've got lots of farmland and like there are quarries near where I live and I'm trying to write a story all about that because it's kind of like living history, you know, and yeah. and, and these industries tend to be stained with bloodshed because let's face it none of them were that safe yes 20 30 40 100 years ago so it's weird how something like industry which is so you know so boring on paper if you were to say it's a book about turpentining most people would probably be like really <laughs> you know um, it's like but they're actually really fascinating from a horror perspective because they are just these blood-stained histories that that mark a landscape as well, I know when I was in Maine, I became fascinated by the the, the way this idea of, of logging not, not not so much cutting down the trees, but when I was in in Bangor, they mm -hmm. there was this great display about how they used to float the logs down the mm -hmm. I think it's the Penobscot River, and and they yes. would literally like the loggers would like you know walk across these floating logs, and I remember mm -hmm. thinking like one that's definitely where Stephen King got the idea for the for the raft from. And two, that yeah. is just a great <laughs> kind of like high octane setting for a story, even though it's about a really mundane way of earning a living. Yeah, so I, I did yeah. love all the industrial detail and I would like to go to that museum. <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. Um, and, and two, I think that um, in horror uh, in particular, there's this sort of connection with landscape and place, especially... Uh, when you get into subgenres like folk horror, um, and so when you're dealing with the land and the people, um, that becomes a very significant part of of um, the story as well. Like, and so for me, the research into the book kind of led me to the discovery of um, this whole history of basically of land feuds in Georgia mm. that I was not aware of in any way. And so I, by digging into the naval stores industry and the turpentine industry, that in turn um, led to learning about the logging industry. And when I learned about the logging industry, I kind of stumbled across this largely unknown history that, I mean, is 30 miles, again, uh, maybe even less, maybe 15 miles from where I live, in which for, for a period of about 50 years, uh, just a few counties over, poor, dispossessed people after the Civil War in America were fighting with rich northern uh, industrialists who came down and through various machinations that were dubious at best, um, 
founded lumber companies and either seized or bought for pennies on the dollar hundreds of thousands of acres of land from these poor um, farmers who had just been working the land, which, of course, when you go way back into history, you find out that that land, once when it was verdant, longleaf pine forests, was tribal hunting grounds for Creek Indians. And so there's this long, deep, deep history of of um, who owns the land, who doesn't own the land, and what people do to the land um, for profit that I really wanted to kind of pull that thread out and explore it um, in terms of folk horror. And so layering on to that, that bloody history of, of gunfights and assassinations and bodies being dumped in swamps uh, when the legal system didn't avail people of what they wanted. Um, I wanted to layer onto it something that seemed uniquely of the horror genre. Um, and so that's how we sort of arrived at the hollow kind. Well, it's also uniquely the American horror genre. We, we can get into subgenre shortly um, because it's particularly interesting in, in regards to this novel. But how to ask this without kind of putting the, the wagon before the horses? So you mentioned there about like the deep history, the exploitation, you know, from the mm-hmm. way the indigenous, indigenous population were treated all the way through to the way that working laborers were treated, you know, that, again, that blood-stained history. Um, mm-hmm. But you say you wanted to pick that out, and you do because, and we'll get into more detail on the where's and why's of this as we go along with, with the nature of evil in this in this book. But one of the effects that the the great evil in this book has is it, it, it corrupts people. Um, and there's a whole other timeline to this away from from Nellie and her son Max, where we go back in time to the you know the 20s and 30s and we meet august redfern and ephemia redfern who are the this couple who, who own the land um and they fall under the spell of whatever is is haunting this land but mm-hmm. one of the things that i kept thinking about this as a particularly american story is is it the the the, the, the entity that corrupts them or is it that more prosaic american demon money do you know what i mean are they led astray by their own avarice rather than any kind of supernatural means sure and 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 i would say yes i would say that the foundation of greed and and the uh, ego and the idea of uh, redfern wants to build an empire um and i don't think redfern is a particularly evil man when he sets out to build a business uh I think he's sort of exploring the idea of the American dream, right? Mm. And he he comes down from the north, and he sort of finds his way in the world into the south, uh, in a in a post Civil War world, like late eighteen, uh, well, early nineteen hundreds. And um, so we're coming up on you know industry and the industrial age, and he comes to all of this a bit late after the logging has already happened, or the timber industry has got a foothold, and he sees opportunity. And so in a, in a one way there's like Redfern is simply an entrepreneur. He is, he is uh, uniquely American in that, I suppose, in, in his sort of can do spirit of, I will make my mark on, on the world. Um, which of course, ultimately, <laughs> you know, leads to, to, to disaster and ruin. But I think, um, in the initial 
uh, stages of what he's trying to do, he doesn't see himself as trying to exploit people. He actually sees himself as a very egalitarian sort of fellow who believes in um, equality and all men should be treated equal. And of course, over the course of his time as uh, the leader of this um, business, I think a lot of those values are compromised and thrown out the window in favor of um, appeasement. And of course, you've got the entity which needs to be appeased. And if you appease the entity in the forest, then your fortunes will multiply. But it's but it's a kind of rot um, all the way through. It's it's a momentary transit transitory sort of um, multiplication of fortune because nothing lasts because you can make your tribute and you can have good years, but then you have to go back to the well where things go bad again. And so in, in a way, I guess you could say that's just a perfect sort of like, I mean, metaphor for mm -hmm. <laughs> the American entrepreneurial um, enterprise when it comes to our relationship with industry and the land. Yeah. And, and I think it, as we say, it's uniquely, uniquely American because British Gothic or kind of, you know, European old world Gothic in its mm -hmm. purest form was always, there was very much an economic element, but it was always to do with titles and to do with, you know, soft power and to do with you get to be the Baron, you know, and things like that. Right. Whereas because you don't have those aristocratic trappings in American fiction, it tends to be much more, crudely commercial in its mm -hmm. motivations you know the, the the things that drive it money becomes the synonymous with sin i suppose in american in american gothic mm -hmm. um and i think mm -hmm. like you you make that front and center in this book and it's all part of that thing about having that you know that depth of history and that understanding of the of the industry and the sense that this is a very mundane prosaic world to do with profit margin <laughs> into, into right. which this very grand supernatural disruption arrives. And I, I really like that, but it, it does bring us to the, the probably quite irrelevant topic of, of, uh, of subgenre. Yeah. Al Makatsu blurb the book. I thought really positively saying, whether you call it historical horror, folk horror or Southern Gothic, the hollow kind is as beautifully written as it is chilling. I mean, I'm, I imagine you were quite happy with that anyway. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> but it, it does <laughs> make me wonder what, what you think of it. How would you regard this if you were going to pin a subgenre on it? Well, that's a funny thing because I'm very happy to be called a Southern Gothic writer. I think that's that probably permeates what I do more than anything else. Um but, you know, I, I don't set out to do that necessarily. I, when I start a book, it's not as if I sat down and said, okay, I'm going to write a Southern Gothic about the turpentine industry in Georgia. Um, I didn't do that. I just wrote the book I wrote. And by, by the things that I am preoccupied with and the things that I am interested in, it becomes that when you want to label it. Um, and it just so happens, I think it's accurate, but but I mean, and, and it's true, like I, I come from a Southern, um, a background of Southern writers, like who are, you know, sort of, I, I went to school at the University of Mississippi. So there's a lot of Faulkner in me. There's a lot of um, Flannery O'Connor in me, who whose homestead here in Georgia is about an hour to the north of where we are. Um, 
So I'm, I'm very much aware of those traditions and those genres and, and, and that I am at times working within them. But I think consciously in the writing of the book, I'm never trying to up the Southern Gothicness, you know, turn it up to 11 or anything like that. It's just a matter of these are the things that I think the South is steeped in, in its culture and history and the American South. And I think that, I mean, it's just, it's truth. It's something you can't get away from. Well, not to put you on the spot then, but well, I am going to put you on the spot. Sorry. Um, <laughs> we often throw around these terms, you know, folk horror, um, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And Southern Gothic, I think, is the one that everyone has got this very broad, vague idea of what it means. Mm-hmm. But if you ask mm-hmm. them, and I'm talking about some of my ex-academic peers who do this is a living for them. If you ask them, they would probably point to certain key writers who themselves are quite disparate, you know? Um, Mm. And I just wonder, Mm -hmm. again, what are your thoughts? Do you you have a working definition for Southern Gothic and and some idea of how the hollow kind relates to that tradition? Sure. Um, Well, I think it's in the word, I think. So the Gothic is essentially a genre that America inherited from, from Europe or from, you know, England, from that tradition of writers. And whereas you said earlier that it's, it's not so much about titles, um, and crumbling castles, uh, in America, it is about place. It is about setting. And sometimes those places and settings are rural in nature. The landscape, the American landscape is a unique part of the Gothic in America. Um, it's that idea that the landscape is haunted. The landscape is oppressive. The landscape is something we don't understand. It's mysterious. So it's sort of that romantic notion. Um, and then the Southern element comes in and simply that um, it's set in the South. I mean, it's set in a land that has its own unique qualities and contradictions and, and, um, obsessions. So in the South and in the American South, I think the Southern Gothic is best defined by a book like, uh, and I'm, here I go, I'm mentioning writers, um, Absalom, Absalom by Faulkner. Mm-hmm. So you have uh, people who um, borrow again from that Gothic tradition of titles. I mean, these are people who want to come in and set up and establish dynasties. But whereas in the European Gothic, the dynasties have long been established and there may be no money to fall back on and the castles are falling into ruin. Um, in America, the Gothic is often the other end of that where we're trying to put down roots. We're trying to start something and we're working against the tide of history and um, the sins of history. Yeah. The, one of the things that I think has always drawn me to American horror over British horror is the idea that from a sort of condescending Western perspective, because we are essentially wiping out the entire race memory of the indigenous population here, when I, I realise that when I right. say it, but we are, um, it, it's, a, it's a, a land in which, as you say, people arrive and try and put down roots, and that is very much a pun in relation to your book, but people try and put down roots to find that something was already there. You know, and mm-hmm. I think sometimes that thing that is already there is a metaphor for the genocide that, yes. you know, that then occurred. It's almost like a, a sort of psychotic guilt that, that white Americans have, um, I suppose. 
But mm-hmm. yeah, that, that idea that something is there lurking and waiting and that you, you're a victim before you even begin, you know, you, you're dead before you even start. I, I find that really interesting, particularly when it comes mm-hmm. to like landscape, as you say, way more than ghosts, actually. The idea that the landscape is hostile. Um, yeah. I find I find fascinating. Um, we've talked about, about the land. Let's talk about the house itself now, because mm-hmm. I mentioned right at the start of this chat that it's a dense, detailed book, and, and that particularly shows in the way that you describe Redfern Hill, this ever-so-gothic mansion, because you go to really great pains to make sure that we are fully orientated as early as possible. And if I'm honest... I thought that was quite a bold move because there's this kind of consensus, I suppose, that descriptive passages can be a turnoff for readers. So yes. why did why did you think it was so especially important to spend time on on building that architectural outline? Well, I think there's a couple of elements there. One is that I just needed to do it for myself as a writer to get the place in my head and, and orient, orient myself to the place. Um, because I did, I will say, like, I was aware of that. I think I probably cut out at least five to ten pages of that in the beginning of the book, uh, which didn't make it into the final book of further description of the house. And um, I thought, you know, it's really important to for the reader to go on this same experience that Nellie and Max are going on when they open the door and walk into this house for the first time. Uh, too often in, in books that are about haunted houses, I feel like the house itself gets a little bit short shrift. You know, we're, we're given a few key details um, and then we move on to the plot and the plot keeps propelling things. And I really wanted to slow that down and spend some time with Nellie and Max walking through this old house because I think every room, to a certain extent, um, other than maybe one or two rooms, has some significance in the way that um, they learn about the place, they learn about their family, the past. Um, and so I thought it was really important that the reader have a firm grounding um, in in the house, but also, yeah, that, that idea of just feeling what they're feeling. Because there's a unique feeling that we have when we go into a house for the first time, and a house creates a mood and a vibe that we... Um, we either respond to or we don't. And my wife and I had spent some time looking at houses, uh, thinking about purchasing a house. Uh, ultimately, we didn't. We're still where we were. Um, but we went to a couple of houses, and I was struck by that sense of walking into a house that's not yours, but it's empty, and looking at it and feeling the sense of history that there were people here, there were lives lived here, mm-hmm. there was a long history to this house. Um, that was something I just wanted to recreate. So that that goes some way towards answering my next question, but I'll ask it anyway. Um, you, you mentioned that each room, you know, it has a purpose, is explored, features in some way. And I, I was really drawn to the idea that August Redfern, as I said, the old patriarch of this house, he has a map room, a whole room devoted to maps. And he he's an avid map maker. And I kept thinking that's really cool. Mm-hmm. But then I started thinking, there's something interesting about the fact that you have a a character who is so obsessed with mapping the land, 
And then you yourself spent a great deal of time mapping the house and mapping the land. And I wondered, is there something about nailing down the environs that is important to you or to this story? Yes. Um, in part, my own obsession with maps is a part of the creative process. Um, when I wrote my previous novel, The Boatman's Daughter, the very first thing I did was look at a map of the land through Google Maps and figure out a route that this character would uh, take to run drugs upriver in Arkansas. And I, um, I sat down with this book and the maps that I made first and foremost were of the land of the, the homestead. And then I got into drawing the house and just sort of mapping out where are the turns. And I think that's part of my creative process in part because uh, I have to have an orientation in my head as to um, place, but also place determines a lot. Mm -hmm. Place can determine the length of time you spend somewhere. Um, in the case of my previous novel, how long does it take to get from point A to point B? Well, that's the time frame like that establishes your novel in some ways is how many trips it takes this long to get there over the course of three days, your novel takes place. Um, and so in this, in this particular case, the map making, it struck me was very crucial to, um, to my process. But also, uh, when I was thinking about August Redfern, I kept, I kept thinking about this idea of uh, a man who would have been, um, a sailor, who, uh, and I had read Moby Dick, like probably a year or two years before I wrote this book. And I, I'd never read Moby Dick before. This is kind of a tangential thing, but, um, I came to Moby Dick when I was in my, you know, forties as a, as a human being. And I think that's a good thing because every other time I'd started to read it when I was younger, I didn't respond to it, but suddenly that book just exploded for me as I was an older person, like looking at this, this history of whaling and, 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 um, part of our, our, our world that, you know, all these comments about humanity and, and where, where we are in the world and obsession. And so I had fresh on my brain, this idea of a man who would have been in that world traveling. And if you are a journeyman, then where you are is important and where you go is important. And so when he finally settles in one place, he would still be obsessed with the mapping of that place as a, as both a kind of entrepreneur, but also as a hobbyist, a map maker, Redfern's maps are not just perfunctory maps. They're, they're these kind of ornate, beautiful things that he embellished as an artist. And so then the maps become important for carrying that spark of artistry from Redfern to Nelly, which connects them in terms of, um, you know, their, their sort of inherited sense of the artistic and Nellie's an artist and a painter in the book mm -hmm. and maps at one time in the process of plotting the novel became crucial also for discovering things about the place. And I kind of let that fall away as I was writing, but I kind of retained as much as I possibly could of maps for Nellie in the past, at least. And, and I remember as a kid, um, I was obsessed with, maps at the front of books. Um, I love to flip back to the front of a book. I love um, Tolkien's maps in particular were, were wonderful. Yeah. And I was actually very fortunate in 2019 to, or 2018 to be in Oxford and see the Tolkien exhibit at 
the library there. And um, I, I walked into that. And by the time I left, I was weeping. <laughs> it was so incredible. Yeah. It's like a spiritual experience. So I guess maps have always just been a crucial part of my creative process. And, and I like the idea that that's a way in for me to kind of care about Redfern as a human being is that he shares that passion because he does some really horrible things in the book. Well, yes, he does do some horrible things. And, and we could, that's a great segue into talking about it because I loved reading the historical sections. Don't get me wrong. I, I you know, the, the stuff with Max mm-hmm. and, uh, Max and Nelly is, is great. And it, what's good about the, the, the modern stuff is what starts as, like a haunted house thing, you know, like somebody's forced from their home to live somewhere else and they find out it's, it's not a refuge. That feels like a, a very typical haunted house story, but then it becomes something much more. So I, I loved that. But the historical stuff was where my heart was because there's something about the kind of genteel nastiness <laughs> of those older <laughs> sections that, that really mm. appealed to me. And I, I mean, on a, you know, simple question, but why did you choose the, the sort of 20s into the 30s and the late 80s? Because the contemporary stuff is the 80s, it's not the modern day. Why did you choose mm-hmm. those, those eras to kind of bifurcate your story? Um, I chose 1989 in particular because that's the same year that I was 11 years old. So... Uh, for me, it was an easy way in to write about Max as a child because it was essentially a lot of the things. I mean, aside from the abuse that he suffers, I think that Max is pretty much like the kind of kid I was. He loved the things I loved. And so there's a lot of kinship with that character for me. Um, so the time period, in a way, was a way into that, uh, to write about that. Um, but it's also, when you trace back from that generationally, I mean, you, you just sort of end up naturally at, well, this is the time that August Redfern would have lived. And of course, that also dovetails with a bit of the, the historic timeline of the turpentine industry and its, its kind of heyday. I think it existed actually pretty well into the 40s, but was on the wane by the 1950s um, here in this region in North Carolina, uh, in Florida as well. Um, so it, in a way, it was just sort of a, a nice confluence of um, convenient coincidence that all of these things lined up and fit. I did play around with the, the gaps in time a little bit. Like, when did the, the, the jumps in time and historical timeline happen from 1917 to 18? And then from, I think there's one in the 20s. And then further down the road, it's in the 30s. So I was trying to kind of trace the arc of that industry in miniature through this family and the rise and fall of it. Um, but also it's just a simple matter of how old is Nellie's father? When would he have been a child? At what age would he, have, you know, what age would he have been? What year would it have been? Mm-hmm. There was a lot of um, early <laughs> frustrations with changing dates on family trees, uh, which that, that, those are kind of details that just sort of drive me crazy. But I, I, f- I think I finally got them right. And but even in the, in the copy editing of the book, there were some, some little year and age flubs that got caught. So those things fluctuated a bit. It, I'm a little bit taken aback, if I'm honest, Andy, by how, <laughs> how many things you've said that correlate completely with the thing I'm 
currently trying to write. So you you won't know, <laughs> you won't know this, but I I started this podcast as a, as a way to sort of semi document my own attempts at writing a novel. Mm-hmm. And some listeners will be delighted to hear that I have actually re-picked up the story because I, I put it down for a year and I've gone back to it. So, so Dan, if you're mm-hmm. listening, I am back at the page. But Andy, some of the things, right? So you're writing about turpentining. I'm writing about quarrying, which is very much, you know, in the, in the blood and stone of where I live. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm writing in a two timelines with my protagonist is, is an elderly man in the modern day and uh, a much younger man, you know, decades earlier and again i was doing mm-hmm. that thing I, I was trying to find a way because the, the guy the old guy i'm writing about works in service as kind of like a valet and i was like well how how late into the 20th century can i push that that would be a viable job to allow him to be the mm-hmm. right age you know in the modern day do i have to move that and it is it's a nightmare isn't it it is trying to shift around these dates and people's age than this it's just it's yeah that's what put me off in the what i was writing in the first place that's what made me close the document and, and almost delete it um but i also yeah. draw maps the first thing i did was like uh-huh. draw a, a mock-up map of the town i grew up in and distort it a little bit so maybe that's part of why i love wow. this book so much maybe i'm just seeing a successful version of what i want to create <laughs> oh that's nice that's great it's fun it's fun too in that process how things kind of fall in your lap unexpectedly and mm-hmm. and it can be frustrating because you you think, oh, damn, I've got so much written already. Now I've got to go back and change this because the, the thing that fell in my lap is too good not to put in the book. So um, the example of that for me with the hollow kind was the 1918 um, influenza pandemic, mm-hmm. which was not a part of the book in its original draft, um, or at least in its original outline and conception. But in the midst of the writing of this book, of course, I found myself in the summer of 2020 in lockdown with my wife and our cats here at the house and uh, the headlines daily were about people who refuse to get vaccines or people who refuse to acknowledge the science behind the pandemic that was raging in the world. And it was such a strange kind of moment when I realized that in Georgia in the 19, in like 17 and 18 there and 19, I guess there would have been this similar vibe in the air especially in urban areas like Atlanta or in um, you know, areas like um, uh, Camp Gordon and places on the coast where there were these mass grave burial sites. Um, so I took a lot of that. I did a lot of research into that, and I took that and put that right in the book. And so there's moments in the book that um, at, uh, at the one, there's a particular scene where um, in the historical timeline where uh, a character gets a ride to town and he finds himself riding with a politician and two uh, two soldiers who are on their way home um, to see their their wives or their girlfriends and their mothers and and there's this whole conversation that happens about what's causing the flu is it German aspirin you know and it's it's almost something like you read it and you think well this is something out of a Coen Brothers film it's absurd yeah. these characters are idiots but at the same time. Uh, this is ripped right out of like life in 2020. So that was a strange moment for me. Well, yeah, I was listening to a podcast all about the black death and some of the things Mm -hmm. that happened then are exactly the same as today. The paranoia, (laughs) the propaganda, you know, the, the, the myth building, it's just like, Christ, how do we not change? How many times has this got to happen before we, we change? Yeah. But actually speaking of, of, of change, that's one of the reasons I, 
I loved the historical sections because this it's a weird thing with the, with the periods you chose that th- th- they feel like they are parts of entirely different worlds and there's something very specific about the early 20th, 20th century that I've always found so fascinating in horror but I, I kind of struggle to articulate why but and the best I can do is say that the tens and the twenties and the thirties, you know, before the Second World War, they belong to the modern age, but they also feel primitive, at least in the imagination, mm-hmm. you know. Um, mm-hmm. And society was close enough to be recognisable. Like, you know, my dad was born in nineteen thirty-six, but different rules applied. Does does that make sense? Oh yeah, yeah. Um... I think about that divide in terms of the modern age changing our conceptions of uh, the world in which we live. So I think about Westerns in America and uh, the Western is sort of like America's great myth of, um, for better or worse, of, of American land and American people and manifest destiny and all that hogwash. So. Westerns existed in an era when, you know, the industrial age was kind of like we were building railroads west, but people still traveled by horse. And and I think about Sam Peckinpah's movie, The Wild Bunch, Mm -hmm. where you have the intrusion of this automobile into that world. And what do we do with that? What do we do with this modern um, technology? We use it to drag a man to his death behind behind it you know we we use it to be fools and barbarians and i and and that just naturally leads to like mechanized weapons and and gatling guns and things that can kill people at an alarmingly fast rate so so yeah i i sort of feel like for me that that moment in america is the turn from the 1800s to the 1900s and when industry and and mechanization sort of came up on the rise in terms of american life yeah some things were far enough off the map that they, you know, before technology, as we conceive of it, they, they were still secluded and laws sort of unto themselves almost. And I'm not actually sure how true that is or whether it's just a myth we all subscribe to for the benefits of storytelling. But either way, right. it works. I mean, Redfern, the character, gets across that idea of the difference between the 20s and the, well, later years. In, in one character, because we see him... Well, the man we see in his prime back in the 20s is the, is the same man that we meet again in 1975 in these short interludes. But they mm-hmm. they are two entirely different existences. Like he's, an, mm-hmm. he's an irascible old man in the 70s, but we know what he was capable of 15 years earlier, 50, rather, years earlier. Because mm-hmm. there's one set piece when we see August Redfern kind of wreak bloody revenge... I mean, I think that is my favourite 30 minutes of reading of this entire year. That's, that was my favourite bit of the book to write. Oh, <laughs> and, and that comes through. It, that, it opens up and it's just... Because the book is kind of like a clenched fist in parts. And that part, it's just like it breathes out and then, you know, shoots everyone. And it just mm-hmm. excited me so much. And I, I mean, my question, I suppose, is, you know, you love writing it. I love reading it. What is it about that kind of violence that we find so thrilling? <laughs> I don't know. And that's, I was sort of laughing while you were talking and thinking this is really disturbing where this might be going because I know he's going to ask this question. 
Um, I don't know. I don't know if it's the catharsis of it. Uh, just like you said, like the clenched fist and, and I think there's something innate in our, in our natures as human beings that tends toward destruction, towards self-destruction. Um, and those cathartic, violent moments in fiction and storytelling, uh, by virtue of not being real, are our way of sort of excising that from us, maybe, um, temporarily. Um, I don't know. That's a thing I've wrestled with myself. Mm. I, I don't want to be known as someone who is a violent writer, but at the same time, I don't want to shy away from violence just because violence isn't palatable, if that makes sense. Yeah, and I'm very aware of the discourse around masculinity and around, you know, toxic toxicity and, and all of that stuff. And I I think it's, you know, marvellous that we are somewhat shedding that burden. But mm. at the same time, there is a certain kind of literature, which I would probably call like muscular American literature, everything from Hemingway through to your books, the work of somebody like John Connolly in his Charlie Parker books, for example, where the sheer extremity of the violence done against bad men. I think that's part of it, but right. the extremity of the violence literally makes me smile. <laughs> you know, like there's, there's, there's a scene like of, of sort of quite brutal castration in this book. And, and, and I was like, I was grinning ear to ear just at the, the audacity of it. And I, I don't know what that, I don't know what that is because I'm quite a gentle soul in myself, but it, it yeah, <laughs> right. this is why we read horror, I suppose. Yeah, maybe in part. Um, and I think you, you hit it on the head with the idea that it happens to bad people. Um, I think there's a, a sense of righteous, like, um, fury in some of this. Um, and, and, and in a way it's kind of a redemptive moment for, mm. um, August Redfern, that whole sequence in a way. Um, because he's trying, ironically, at that point in the story to put things right. Um, and he's sort of found himself in this moment where he's not hes not on the right path, but he is... Like, there's there's the war between the personal and, and what he's being sort of forced to do. Um, there is some satisfaction in what he does in that sequence, I think, for him personally. I'm not sure if it's redemptive at all, but... Um, there are moments of redemption that follow after that for him um, when he makes the right choice, but we're all capable of the right choice and the wrong choice. And, and I like the, the complicated nature of that. Yeah. Yeah, completely. And there's, there's one great line where he says to somebody, someone says, what do you want me to do? And he says, just do what you normally do. Shut, shut up and help me hurt some motherfuckers. And I'm like, <laughs> you know, just, I like that. That was a cool line. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, well, and I, I will say I come from, um, you know, the, again, like the, the world of Southern literature has its own subgenres. And one of those things is grit lit mm. and grit lit, uh, as it's called here, is sort of that that sort of uh, tough guy, Jim Harrison kind of prose and or, you know, things that happen. Um, there's a there's a writer who was one of the writers in my program, Tom Franklin, who has a collection of short stories called poachers that I just, I adore the stories in that book. But the last one is about this like malevolent game warden figure who, who um, <laughs> takes vengeance on poachers for poaching animals and wildlife in the forest. And it's just so much fun to read. And I don't know why <laughs> but he does horrible things to them. 
Yeah, and the topic greatly. The person it made me think of was um, Donald Ray Pollock. Oh yeah, I love Donald Ray Pollock. Yeah, and he wrote my all-time favorite first line to a book, which is from you know you know Knock'em Stiff, his short story collection. Like mm-hmm. the the opening line of that first story is, "My father showed me how to hurt a man one August night at the torch driving when I was seven years old," and I just yep. think it's it that anyone who cannot read on after hearing reading that sentence is a stronger person than me, you know, and and there's something <laughs> of there's something of that sensibility in in that key scene at the middle of the hollow kind. As an aside, have you ever seen the film Dead Man's Shoes? Quite an obscure film, I imagine, overseas. I have not. So, I, well, for a start, I'd heartily recommend it. It's a very, very, very um, low-budget British film starring Paddy Considine in his one of his earlier roles. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's set on this council estate in an innocuous part of the, of the UK where a guy returns from war to find that his younger brother has been, has been being mistreated by these local drug dealers, but they're just little shits. They're not even like big gangland figures. They're just knobheads, you know, live on this estate and he goes to war with them. Um, And I think everything we've said about, you know, bloody vengeance and the satisfaction of that is, is that film does it beautifully. And the scene that we're talking about is echoed in that film as well. So I would, for my American listeners who may not have seen Dead Man's Shoes. It's by Shane Meadows, and I, I definitely recommend watching it. It's it's considered a kind of cult classic over here in the UK. I will check that out. Definitely do. But moving on from the very bloody and real-world horror of this story, um, mm-hmm. let's talk about the weird with a capital W, because the other aspect of setting the book in the 20s and 30s is that it, is that it nods to the fiction of that time, which is, you know, mm-hmm. dominated, at least in this genre, by the weird. So... Normally, I don't do spoilers, and I'm going to be careful here because I don't want to spoil too much, but I'm aware we've... I've had a few weeks on the bounce now where I've not really talked about the nature of the actual horror in the books in question, and yours is so interesting that I want to get into it. Um, The evil at the heart of this story is actually quite obscure. You you give us some kind of full-on visuals late in the book, but you flesh out the backstory in fragment and in dream. Now, Mm-hmm. Ephemia calls it the dweller. And that's a term that's used by Clark Ashton Smith and August Deleth in, in the wider Cthulhu mythos. You also use the phrase haunter in the dark, which Lovecraft fans will recognize immediately. Now, it's a testament right. to the impact of the man's fiction that no matter how much I deride him, <laughs> I nonetheless find myself asking guests again and again about Lovecraft's influence. So over to you. Mm-hmm. How... How Lovecraftian is this story or its inspiration? Well, it's definitely there. Um, I don't want to make too much of it in the sense that I am someone who is an ardent Lovecraft reader and fan. I have not been for most of my life. I've recently read a lot more of Lovecraft. And the thing I like about the Cthulhu mythos and Lovecraft in general is this notion of a cosmology mm-hmm. that exists beyond the page that other writers have actually kind of tapped into. Um, and so while I wouldn't say I'm trying to tap into that, I would definitely say that I'm working in the spirit of that in the sense of borrowing ideas and vibes from that. Um, so I wouldn't say that it exists exactly within that mythos, but 
um, in a way, the, the next project that I'm working on after the Holocaust kind of extends that idea a little bit. I, I hope yeah, that that these stories were Lovecraft's sort of interpretation of the unexplained world next door. Um, and so characters might look to stories written by people like him uh, as maybe these were stories that were not necessarily 100% fictions, but these were visions. These were things glimpsed mm -hmm. by people who put this label on it. Okay. So the idea that the, the fiction is in some way a reflection of some hidden truth. Yeah. And there's the character of James Green in this novel, um, who is one of the turpentine workers in the historical sections. And the, uh, one of the little fun Easter eggs that I threw in for the book is that the, the epigraph at the beginning of the novel is actually from a James Green story published in 1932 um, called The Nameless Traveler. Uh, so I, I was kind of trying to build this idea that, you know, James is interested in horror fiction. He likes reading Edgar Allan Poe. Eventually, when that character finds his way into the wider world, my idea for James was that he becomes a fairly successful writer in that genre. And so, you know, with future projects that I'm working on, one of the things that I'm sort of trying to do to borrow from that mythos of Lovecraft and the idea of cosmology, which I guess in turn borrows from people like King, mm -hmm. is creating interconnected works, things that um, are not necessarily books in a series, but they all exist within the same world and same realm. So in 1979, when something is happening over here in The Boatman's Daughter, uh, something parallel is happening in 1979 to Nellie Gardner. Right. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah. Because something I noticed, now I haven't read The Boatman's Daughter, right? But mm -hmm. right. obviously it's quite, a, it's quite a resonant title. You know, late in the final showdown, we get a flash of the, the dweller's perspective. And there's this mm -hmm. great quote, and this is indicative of kind of the epic scale of this story. There's a quote where it says that how it hid in the channels of the earth, deep down where sacrifices are made and the blood runs like roots to knit all things together from the lowest boatman in a faraway swamp to the wreckage of this house. Now that phrase, knit all things together, and reference to a boatman, am I right in thinking that that is a reference to the boatman's daughter? Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I thought that might be the most long-winded wrong theory ever, but excellent. <laughs> no, no, you're you're absolutely right. And that was the thing that it, until the last sort of draft of the book, I wrestled with doing that because I thought, you know, on the one hand, this is going to make any sense to anybody who doesn't know anything else about anything I've written. But on the other hand, my editor, who was a real fan of that first book, or the, the Boatman's Daughter, she really liked that and wanted me to keep it. So I did. And um, I tried to kind of, yeah, create this sense that all things are kind of interconnected and, maybe there are parallel worlds. Maybe this isn't necessarily just one world that we're dealing with here, but it's, it's that kind of multiverse idea too, that a story, a novel, a book is a contained world within a world. You know, it's a, it's a world within the world we exist in in reality. And, you know, which of course gets that mirror effect of, are we all just in someone's novel, mm. <laughs> cosmically speaking? So, yeah. 
that's that's very cool. I, I need to definitely go and read the Boltman's Daughter now. That's the final impetus. Um, last question. This is up to you to navigate or just tell me to mm-hmm. piss off if you want. But <laughs> y- you mentioned cosmology and there's a wonderful line when the entity itself ponders the name Dweller and thinks of all its names in all the universes it has known, it likes this one best. Now that line in all the universes it has known, that's like petrol on my imagination because I, I can't explain it, but I love that. You know, Pennywise the Clown, you know, Cthulhu. Mm-hmm. I love that use of that idea of, of a law that extends beyond the page. I just love that stuff. But can you tell us anything that we don't know from the book? Like, what is the creature? Where is it from? Like, can you tell us anything that we, we can't, you know, that reading between the lines and these fragments? Well, uh, there's also some key information when August Redfern visits the psychic in Savannah. Mm-hmm. Um, and he has, there's the, the medium who channels um, his, his dead son, who is in the company of the dweller at that point, um, as things who are given over to the dweller are in their death. Um, and there's a little bit of the history and the origin of the character, the creature there. Um, but essentially the dweller was born out of the idea that my, um, Barry Hanna, the great short story writer who was my thesis advisor and mentor at the university of Mississippi in every writing workshop that I took with Barry, he bemoaned and lamented the fact that more MFA students weren't writing what he called pirate stories. Um, stories of high adventure. Uh, we were all writing like knockoff Raymond Carver and, and, and things that were about things. We had no idea what they really were. You know, we were trying to write about life and we hadn't lived it. Well, great. And Barry just wanted us. <laughs> yeah, he did. And he was, and he was wonderful. And, um, he's since passed away and I, I miss him every time I write a sentence. Barry's wonderful. Um, but uh, pirate stories, this idea of high adventure. And so I really wanted to just kind of pay a slight tribute to that idea with the dweller's origins. Um, this idea of connecting August Redfern's world of sailing and, and the nautical stuff from Moby Dick that um, Georgia, the Georgia coast has a history of pirates. You know, you go to Savannah, one of the things is like the, there's pirate themed restaurants in Savannah. Um, and I think I forget the pirate. He's a famous pirate. Um, in the 1700s, I cannot think of the name right off the top of my head right now, but uh, he was basically, I want to say arrested or killed somewhere off the coast in this region. But there's a rumor that he had a, a, a place like a, a hideout here on an island off the Georgia coast. So I kind of wanted this idea in the dweller's origins that he was found in the sea. It was found in the sea um, by these, these men who didn't know what to do with it. And they put it in a little chest and they treated it like treasure, but quickly it was something that they wanted to get rid of because it didn't bring good fortune. And so they tossed it overboard and it found its way up the river through happenstance um, or didn't actually toss it overboard. I believe in the story in the image, right? The, they bury it. They bury it. Right. Yeah. They bury it. And so there's this sense of like, it made its way into the world just by accident, just by, it could have easily been somewhere else that they buried it, but here is where it ended up. And so the reason that the dweller loves that name above 
all other names in my mind is that it implies this is home. Mm. This is where I belong. This is where I dwell. And that ties nicely into the, um, the idea that Nellie wants to find a similar thing. And so it sets them up as a kind of good nemesis for each other. And, and also within, within the sheer overwhelming evil of the dweller, there is also a pathos because it, Right. It's never had a home, and it's it's you know it's a, essentially a child that has fallen from its where it should be. It's come to a different stranger in a strange land, isn't it? You know, and then yes. um, there's a line where it it talks about how it used you know when it would in between sacrifice and when it would roam. It says that it it would go into the woods and howl its loneliness into the night. And <laughs> I've always yeah. been one of, one of the saddest things I ever read. And if I think about it, I still get like a, a nausea of of tragedy in my stomach. Is the story by Ray Bradbury, the Foghorn. I think I talk about it quite mm. a lot on this show, but where, where the, the the prehistoric monster rises from the ocean and and attacks the the Foghorn at sea because it it it, it thought it was one of itself and it's been so alone that in its rage, oh it's, yeah, it's this thing that's been on, on its, its own for millions of years and it comes up and there's a lighthouse and the Foghorn is blaring and, and it, it thinks it's a friend. And when it's not, it demolishes it and then sinks back. And it's the loneliness Gosh. of that monster breaks my heart. And there's something of the dweller in that as well, that I, that, that spoke to me anyway. <laughs> yeah. That's beautiful. Well, the best monsters are lonely monsters. Like uh-huh. yeah. I think, I think all monsters are empathetic by that nature, by that fact alone, they're lonely. Yeah. Well, I think we did that without giving too much weight that would stop anyone's enjoyment of the story. So, so yeah. Um, so, We've talked a lot about about kind of references and inspirations and and, and intertext today, uh, which leads nicely to the the penultimate question: Can you recommend a book for my listeners that they should read and and, and tell us why? Yeah, um, I just recently sat down for an interview with a with a horror writer whose work I did not know prior to talking with him, Joe Koch, and Joe has a collection of short stories out called Convulsive. And they are transgressive and visceral and unnerving and strange. They're, they're some of the weirdest things I've ever read and they're wonderful, but they will leave you shaken. Uh, uh, (laughs) They are not stories that coddle you or comfort you. And I just thought I'd never read anything like it, never had an experience like it. So it's called convulsive and it's a collection of stories, I believe out from apocalypse party press. And well, you can check out a, um, an interview that I did with Joe for Southwest Review on their website, SWR uh, or southwestreview.com, I think it is. And uh, Joe's a fascinating writer. I'll definitely look it up because not only do I know the book, but but Joe was tweeting me today um, in <laughs> response to my massively misguided tweet about not liking dream sequences in, in books, <laughs> uh, which as I'm currently speaking, my phone is going insane at the side of me because I've basically just done a Joyce Carol Oates and the internet is piling on now. So, so yeah, hopefully by the time this goes live in like three weeks, it will have died down. But right now I am both a champion of the masses and persona non grata. But Joe, Joe came back with a very nuanced response to my, my misguided tweet. So for those two reasons, I will, I'll I'll look that book up. (laughs) Uh, my, My last question, Andy, I ask everyone, what truly scares you? Ah, um, I think what truly scares me 
is the uncertainty of day-to-day -day existence. So I think if you'd asked me that question prior to 2016, I would have had a different answer that would have been maybe more in line with the usual answer that you might get about, you know, loss of loved ones or whatever. Um, but I think, I mean, obviously I would still say that, you know, like waking up at 3 a.m. in the morning and considering the possibility that my wife next to me might not be there is horrifying. But um, there's also this new creeping thing, this uncertainty about day-to-day -day life, this idea of we've got climate change, we've got the acceleration of that, we've got the state of the world and its divisions. And so I think these things have always been with us, but they just seem like they're rapidly intensifying. And that that's just sort of created this great existential dread mm. of the news and information and seeing the slow moving apocalypse <laughs> that we're in right now is sometimes overwhelmingly terrifying. I feel that you've put that really well, but that's something I've been trying to articulate for a while. The sense that everything is fraying at once. Um, <laughs> I asked my dad about it. I actually said to my dad recently, like in your 80 odd years of life, have you ever known a time when things felt like they were kind of coming apart so rapidly? And he said, no, the one thing I'll say in response that, I think is a slight balm is that I'm, I'm actually not sure the world is any worse than it's ever been. I think we just know more. That's true. Information is, is more accessible and accelerating as well. Because I was looking the other day on my, I was on the news, like I'm endlessly on the news, just worrying myself sick, doom scrolling. And my mm -hmm. wife was kind of like, Neil, you've got to stop doing this because you're driving yourself crazy. And it dawned on me that I'd, I'd been reading in quick succession about Ukraine and, you know, Vlad's threats to kill us all. I was then reading about, like, mm -hmm. the UK pound just, like, being demolished by ridiculous Tory policies. And then I was reading mm. in the same day about the, the far right getting into power in Italy. And I was like, that's three different nations. Like, we're not supposed to have access to information that rapidly. You know, it, sh it, sh it should take weeks for that news to arrive by by sailing ship you know so that we can really really compute it and i'm not saying ignorance is bliss but i do think we are we're kind of overwhelmed by the sense of crisis that may be no worse than than ever before hopefully yeah, yeah. hopefully well i i feel like that's that's exactly what i would hope for as well that we're not we're not as rapidly sliding toward oblivion as it feels as if we are, you know, on a day-to-day -day basis. So but what a great place to end our conversation. <laughs> yeah. With the, with the, the tiny hope that we're not tiptoeing towards the void. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. Right. Well, let's leave it there on that delightful note. Um, I think it befits the book. Uh, I mean, it's been made quite clear that how much I, I've loved this book. Um, I use the word favorite, very sparingly. Normally I say one of my favorites or great and people get from my general demeanor and tone whether I think they should go and buy the book. This one is my favorite of the year um, and just thank you so much for writing it and, and talking to me at such length about it. I, I loved it and, and Andy Davidson, thank you for talking scared. Thanks for having me. An apology, first of all, folks. I'm sure you noticed the crackle when I was speaking in that episode. I hope it wasn't 
too intrusive. Like, if you listen to this now, I, I guess it wasn't. You got through. <laughs> that was my hair catching on the mic, I think. Yeah, I've gone a, a tad dishevelled in my life as a freelancer. <laughs> I look like a kind of homeless BG or the fourth handsome brother, you know, the one they keep in the attic. Um, all I can do is try and make sure that doesn't happen going forwards. Hair bobbles may be the answer. So this is our last episode before Halloween. It's fallen early this year and there's still a week to go. So it feels kind of premature to say happy Halloween, but happy Halloween if you celebrate, which I'm sure you do. I'll be off to a party this weekend and I would tell you what my wife and I are going to be wearing, but the host of said party listens to this show and I really want to maintain the surprise. But trust me, wait till you see the photos. (laughs) I hope you all have a lovely, macabre time, whatever you're doing yourselves. Right, Andy's book. What can I say? It's a fucking masterpiece. I loved it. I may have given the game away a bit early, actually, on my best books of the year Christmas special. But but yeah, you have to read this book. I did actually struggle with it at first, because all that descriptive stuff about the house and the land, all that verbal mapping that... I asked Andy about, it feels quite claustrophobic and and very, very dense, but I persevered and the book just flowers into this brilliant story of good and evil and everything in between. It, It really does feel like William Faulkner got pissed off with Lovecraft and went, this is how you do cosmic horror, Howard. I mean, it's a book that contains both an otherworldly entity from the primeval past and a detailed insight into the turpentine industry. <laughs> just get it and accept the challenge and, and just enjoy it, folks. It's been a while since I reflected on any of the books that we've talked about and which I list in the show notes. Often there isn't really space and time because these afterwards can get long. This week, though, I want to draw your attention to Donald Ray Pollock. He's written a few books, the most famous being The Devil All the Time, which Netflix adapted with... Tom Holland, the kid who plays Spider-Man, but in a very, very different role. It is a great film. It's a kind of southern gothic pulp fiction in structure. But Donald Ray Pollock's writing is extraordinary. I I mentioned that one of his books contains my favourite first line, and I'll I'll repeat that. The line is, quote, My father showed me how to hurt a man one August night at the torch driving when I was seven years old. That book is called Knock'em Stiff. All one word. It's a collection of overlapping short stories that are all set in the town of Knockham Stiff, Ohio, which is unbelievably a real place. The stories are violent and often vile. There is murder and cruelty and some some pretty awful incest at one point. It's a challenging example of this genre, grit lit, that Andy mentioned. I may actually use the phrase grim lit instead. But it's really effective storytelling. If you haven't read Donald Ray Pollock, I would recommend you do so forthwith. Okay, I've talked for a while now and this episode has to go live in exactly 38 minutes. I ran out of time this week because work has got me crushed. Halloween is a busy time for the horror freelancer. I've got articles in The Guardian, uh, three coming out in Esquire and, and they're all coming this week and I'll share them online. One of them is about me trying to cook my way through Teresa Carl Sanders' Castle Rock kitchen with middling success. It turns out I'm better at writing about Stephen King than I am cooking recipes inspired by him. Um, 
I hope you read that one, at least, when it goes live tomorrow. If you want to get in touch about anything to do with horror, or, or anything, you know, cooking perhaps, it's the usual point of contact. Insta and Twitter at TalkScaredPod. And do me a favour, if you're on Instagram and don't follow me, do. Because building an audience when you're not photographically gifted, it's not easy. Or you could just stick to words and email me at TalkingScaredPod at gmail.com. Now, it's Halloween, so let's celebrate horror. Do me a favour and write a review of your favourite podcast. If it's this one, fantastic. But if not, review the show that you love. Indie podcasting is hard and nice reviews make it really worthwhile. There's always the Patreon. To repeat, you can contribute a few dollars and get bonus stuff. Just follow the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. I'm back next week with Brian McCauley and his novel Curse of the Reaper. It's a book that's so much fun that it made me fall back in love with my childhood nemesis, Freddy Krueger. That link will become clear next week. But for now, carve a face into something. Tie a black ribbon around the tree. Pick a scary movie and just have a great Halloween. Read good books and remember, this week more than ever, it's good to be scared.